We begin with prayer. Sanctify us with your truth, O Lord. Your word is truth. Amen. My friends who have gathered together on this this Sunday morning in the season of Lent when we have the opportunity to to focus on our Savior as our substitute, you know that the, the theme in front of us is His pain, our gain, and we look at justice today. But do you realize what I just said? We look at justice. What is justice? What does that look like to you? That's kind of a hard question because you're being asked to picture a concept. Maybe in your own mind, when I talk about justice, you're already thinking about uh, court decrees or verdicts that have come down over the years, and you can maybe give an example. This is what justice looks like. Or maybe you have an image of how society over many, many years now has tried to personify justice. Do you think of the, the statue that you frequently see outside of courthouses? That's depicting Lady Justice. Can you think of what that looks like? You have this lady with with flowing garments, but she usually has two or three distinct features to depict justice. In one hand, she's holding a sword. Why? Because justice brings authority and power. In the other hand, normally she's holding scales, as in measuring scales, as in the ability to weigh evidence and be found guilty or not guilty. And then frequently she's also blindfolded. The idea of blind justice or justice that will not take into consideration things that might make you partial because we're just going just gonna to look at the facts, just going to look at the facts and, and we're going to keep politics out of it, we're going to keep fame and wealth and the, the, the opinions out of it. Justice is blind, just give me the facts, the cold hard facts and justice will be meted out. At least that's the, the goal. But when I ask you what justice looks like, it might be that one of the first things you think of are moments that you have felt that you have been treated unfairly. Or maybe when there was a time of injustice, a time when when justice was not served. And when that happens, isn't it common to ask yourselves the question, who is really in control here? So I want you to ask that question. Because when we talk about his pain, our gain, and now we focus in on justice, it's a very important question. Who is actually in control when we see things play out in this world that seem to be so unjust? So this is what I want to do for you. We have a pretty long sermon text today. And that's okay. 
It's all God's word. I'm going to read it for you. But as I'm reading it, I want this to be the question that you keep asking yourself, not only to keep you alert, but also to get you thinking about the, the predominant thought. As I'm reading the text, I want you to think, who's actually in control? So I'm going to read to you now from Luke, starting with uh, chapter 22, verse 66, and then spilling on over into chapter 23. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Christ, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, If I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, Are you then the Son of God? He replied, You are right in saying, I am. Then they said, Why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased. Because for a long time, he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracles. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him, dressing him in an elegant robe. They sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this... They had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. With one voice they cried out, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! For the third time he spoke to them, Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, 
they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. This is the word of our Lord. A long section from God's word. And as you were listening to it, you were to be asking yourself, well, who's actually in control? Allow me now to give you the Reader's Digest version. All of this unfolded between the evening of the night we call Maundy Thursday and the morning of the day we call Good Friday. And what had happened was Jesus became this political ping-pong ball where he was tossed to and from various religious and political leaders who were trying to figure out what ought to be done with him, what justice could be served. So perhaps you know the story. Jesus had already been taken into custody when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember how he had been praying and then Judas, his betrayer, showed up. But he was taken into custody by the religious leaders, the the Jewish leading council of Jerusalem. And so the first thing we hear is that Jesus taken into custody by those Jewish leaders. He had to wait for for the morning to break and then those religious leaders came together. It was the group that we would refer to as the Sanhedrin. 71 men. 71 men would have assembled made up of teachers of the law and scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees and then the high priest Caiaphas. And they passed judgment, didn't they? They heard all they wanted to hear when Jesus referred to himself as the Son of God. He said, that's blasphemy. This man should be punished. But here's the problem. The Jewish leaders did not have the authority to execute justice the way they wanted it because they wanted him dead. So it needs to be elevated to a a Roman authority. And so what do they do? They march Jesus over to Pontius Pilate's residence in Jerusalem. Interrogated by Pontius Pilate, found to be innocent, But having this political hot potato in his hands, he finds out, well, isn't this Jesus of Nazareth from from that region up in Galilee? Isn't that under Herod's jurisdiction? By all means, let's let Herod figure this out. Ships him off that same morning to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem. And Herod, just as his father would have done, was not interested in the truth of Jesus, but thought, hey, maybe I'll get a free show out of the deal this miracle worker. After not getting any miracles out of him, he frustratedly returns Jesus to Pilate, but says, no, he's innocent, but you can have him back. And now Pilate, once again, stuck with, how do I execute justice? Here's this man. He certainly seems to be innocent. I'll simply release him after I punish him. To which the crowd said, no, we want justice. And so Pontius Pilate, being pushed into a corner, says, well, how about this? I will release a known murderer in his place. 
Actually, I'll release Jesus instead of a known murderer in his place to which the crowd says, no, we want the known murderer. We want Barabbas. To which Pilate says once again, no, this man has done nothing wrong. And then the shouts kept coming. Crucify him. And Pilate relented. Who's in control? Who, who is in control? Was it the, the Jewish leaders who thought they should be in control because they saw that Christ was a threat to their religion, but they didn't have the power to do what they wanted? Was it Pontius Pilate? Was he actually in control as he held the, the authority of the Roman Empire? Or was it Herod? The geographical leader of, of Galilee? You see, in their minds, they were playing this heavy duty game of political intrigue. And so who was responsible for carrying out justice? You see, we ask that question because we care about justice. You care about justice. You care about propriety and accountability. You live in a nation which has courts for a reason. You care about justice. Our society cares about justice. Do you want to know what happens when someone asks me what I think of when I see justice? You might laugh, but I think of my youth. And I think of Saturday morning cartoons. And I think of the Hall of Justice. Do you know what that is? It's where Superman and his buddies hung out. And why were DC Comics and Superman such a big deal? Because we like the idea of justice being carried out even if we need superheroes to do it. So who's in control? Did justice get carried out? Maybe we... We look down our noses at Pontius Pilate. Because they say, finally, you were the one who was supposed to be in control, Pilate. And you totally blew it. And to this day, what do we say in our creed? I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. He's immortalized as the one under whom Christ suffered. And we say, that's the man who was to be responsible, and he blew it. Justice was not exacted. But that would be a very short view of things. Because before we we gang up on Pontius Pilate, can't we also say that it was the fault of the, the group that had gathered? Do you realize that no, no fewer than three times in this text, it states for the record that they found that Christ had done nothing wrong? That there was no basis for the charges? It goes on record saying that. And so we ask, where was justice being done? Pilate, do your job. But then we see this whole group of people and we say, this mob mentality Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again 
But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he spoke to them, why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. This, my friends, is mob mentality at its worst. And so in this political game, was justice met? Sure, Pontius Pilate and Herod from Galilee became friends again because we had a political favor carried out. And sure, the religious leaders, the Jewish council, had a chance to follow the system in place and kick it up to the Roman authorities looking for the death penalty. And so in that sense, they were following the system in place to get a just punishment. But here's our problem. We like the idea of justice being carried out until we put ourselves in this scenario. Because we look down our nose at Pontius Pilate for failing to be a good leader, and then we look at that mob and we get so sick to our stomach in righteous indignation, we look at them and say, how could you turn your back on justice? But isn't mob mentality a good description for what you and I fall into every day? And when we stand in our ivory tower and look down at everyone else in society and say, we think that justice should be met, we fail to look internally in our own heart and realize if justice is the name of the game, I'm done for. Mob mentality. It started in the Garden of Eden when the devil... And Adam and Eve got together and they collectively said, not his way, my way. Mob mentality. You see it in the nation of Israel in the Old Testament when time and time again they get to talking amongst themselves and they decide, not God's way, our way. Mob mentality. We see it in our own lives. When we appeal to our friends and to our family, in the hopes that they will give us permission to do what we already know is wrong. And if they don't give it to us, then we just look for new friends. Or we find a new talking head on television to tell us what we want to hear. Or we pick up a new magazine to give us a perspective that finally itches or scratches the itch of what my ears want to hear. It's the mob mentality of a sinful world that has placed itself against God. And here we are saying, what? No justice? When really we realize that if justice were to be served, it is this group of people standing before a mirror that would be weighed in the balance and found guilty. And so we watch this unfold and we say, Where is justice? There Christ is, being tossed around, the innocent one being declared guilty. 
How can justice carry the day? Not even the superhero from the hall of justice, and it doesn't matter whom you choose, could free him from that situation. Who is really going to be in control? And then you realize it. There he is. The one who shifted from the Sanhedrin to Pilate, from Pilate to Herod, from Herod back to Pilate, the one who in just a few short hours would take a cross upon his back and march up the hill, and then after that be be nailed and crucified on that very cross. He's actually in control the whole time. Because as much as we say we want justice, Jesus is exacting it. When we ask who's in control, we see a God who is perfectly carrying out the measure of justice that will will result in the decree that you and I are innocent, free to go. You see, a Savior who is willingly, patiently, persistently putting himself in the crosshairs so that justice can be carried out on his body so that we might receive the benefit of the declaration of forgiveness. His pain is our gain. His justice becomes our justice. In that passage we read from Corinthians, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Who's in control? It always is and will be our gracious God. The Father and the Son working in perfect harmony to exact a spiritual justice which is going to end with our slates being wiped clean and forgiveness handed to us. In the eyes of the world, we decry the injustice, and yet in God's eyes they say, I will endure injustice that you might become just. And here we see the beautiful paradox of a Savior who has conquered a broken world. What does justice look like? You can think of a lot of things. You can think of the image of of Lady Justice with her blindfolded self and her, her sword and her scales. But maybe from now on, what does justice look like? Just look at the cross. Because there you see the severity of sin and sin exacting its payment. But you see it being taken from one other than yourself. Our substitute, who paid the price, and we, righteous, welcomed to eternal life in heaven. His pain, our gain. His justice became our justice. Amen.
Now may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, may it guard your hearts and your minds in Jesus our Lord. Amen.